This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Leon Logan-Nathan, and with me, my co-host, Peter Gowers. Hello there. How are you, mate? Mate, I've got to tell you a joke. Yeah. So, will, I, uh, will I get it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. So, <laughs> so um, my, I think I, it was I. I was flicking through uh, Facebook last night. Yeah. Um, feeling a little bit sort of ambivalent about that whole election result. In fact, I was yeah. actually a little disappointed in the sense that uh, I thought the people of Palmerston were more worried about crime than apparently their vote showed. But anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I was looking through Facebook and I saw a post, Michael, uh, Michael Gunner, uh, sorry, no, 2020 Michael Gunner, 2024 Quarter Mentha. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. I thought that was really funny. That's anyway. brilliant. Do you, want, do you want to name names who put that out there? I don't know. It was uh, uh, it was a comment on a, you know somebody's post, so I didn't yeah, yeah. Really turn to yeah. it. But um, yeah. yeah, but mate, uh, look, it, it gives me great pleasure today to introduce our guest. Um, she's I will tell you right now, she's one of my favourite people in Darwin. Yeah. Right, uh, and you know uh, that's saying a lot because you yeah, keep reminding me how many people I, I apparently know. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I met her a long time ago when she was working at the um, uh, convention center, mm-hmm. uh, and we carried on that friendship. And uh, you will know that she actually is a celebrity uh, through her husband, right. um, which we, uh, we'll we'll talk about that as well. But um, I look you. I'm looking forward to this conversation very much. She's very funny and she's very honest and that's really the two traits we look for in this co- in, on, on this podcast, isn't pretty it? Pretty much, pretty much. Yep, <laughs> a bit of humour and a bit of honesty is all we need. So on that note, Andrea Wicking, welcome to Territory Story. Thank you, Leon and Peter. It's been a long time coming. You finally convinced me to do this. <laughs> Not sure what I'm in for right now, but sure, I'll share my story. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those of you that uh, were paying attention, you would have heard me say Andrea's um, last name, which is Wicking. And those of you that are savvy, that will be able to connect the, that dot with the cartoonist in the NT News, Colin Wicking. So Andrea is, in fact, Colin's wife. Or better half. Or better half, Exactly, exactly. So, Andrea, we would very much like to know your territory story. Where do you want me to start? From the beginning. From the beginning. Well, I came to the Northern Territory, or more, my parents actually came to the Northern Territory in 1984, I was in boarding school on the Gold Coast, um, very small private boarding school of 50 boarders and a couple of hundred students. And um, my parents were in Papua New Guinea. I actually grew up in Papua New Guinea in Port Moresby and then on Bougainville Island. And Bougainville had all the civil unrest, hence why my father chose to leave there 
we had a very blessed childhood and life in PNG. And uh, they were moving back to Port Moresby and the recession hit in the mid-80s or, you know, early to mid-80s. And, of course, a lot of jobs for expats were no longer available in Port Moresby, so they ended up in Brisbane for a while. And my sister came and joined me in boarding school. She's quite young. Um, and then um, Dad had an offer for a job here in the Northern Territory and they came to Darwin to check it out. They fell in love with it. It was a very similar lifestyle, temperature, uh, ambience, cultural, everything that was very similar to what they experienced in Papua New Guinea. Plus there was an ex-PNG crowd that lived here and they knew quite a few of them. So they made the decision to move to the Territory. Um, they're still here. And um, I followed, I came up on holidays each break, but then made the final move in 1986 to finish high school here in the Territory. Um, as you can imagine, boarding school and airfares were incredibly expensive. So, um, you know, it was a big ask of my parents to keep us both there. My sister wasn't very happy in school there. Is she younger so, yes, younger, 18 months younger. Okay. I'm very, very close to my parents. I'm close to them, but I'm a lot more independent than she was. So I was happy to go on the adventure. Um, so, yeah, so we came here and I went to St. John's College. Um, very different environment to what I'm used to. And uh, I. it would be fair to say I spent my first 18 months in Darwin hating everything <laughs> and thinking I'd made the worst mistake in my life saying to my parents that I would move here and come to school here. It was hard to fit into St. John's because all these kids have been to school together since kindergarten, primary school, high school. You know, they were very well established and had their cliques. Um, but I guess I probably stood out a bit. I came up here and I was what was known as a mod in the 80s, someone who wore all black, <laughs> had black mm. hair. My, you know, I had a concave um, Bob haircut, which, you know, some of the boys used to call me Hermie because it looked like a <laughs> Um And, you know, I came from an all-girls school and I spoke very posh then, not now. And I had different names for things, you know, like it was form room and it was a, a school port and Ooh, port. bathers and all these things. So I was a little bit, I stood out a bit. And I suppose in a way that paid off because I guess I must have been a little bit interesting to some of them. So I got to know, um, you know, got to know them and I still have some very good and dear friendships from that time. But St. John's wasn't my favourite schooling experience and I ended up finishing off Year 12 at Casuarina High. So and then going on to CDU from there to study journalism and... Um, I left uni six months before I got my papers because I was sick of being a poor uni student because we paid our way to go through uni in those days. Our parents didn't pay our hex fees or anything, so I worked three jobs and decided, you know, six months beforehand it wasn't a wise move, but you know what, I'm going to go get a full-time job and work and, and some money and, you know, be able to live and haven't really looked back since. It was, you know a bit of trial and error, and, um, yeah, I can't complain. And so here I am. And your parents uh, are not both Anglo-Australian, though, are they? 
No, my mum is Malaysian, Indian heritage, and my dad is born in Australia, but his father's German and mother from Irish descent. So my dad's mother's side is related to the Cairns family. So she's a Cairns, as in Jim Cairns as well. An ex-federal politician is part of our family network. Wow. Hmm. And and so how did they meet? How'd they meet? So my dad was based in Malaysia with the RAF and my mum was a school teacher and he was based on a small island off the coast of Malaysia with a whole bunch of Englishmen, the English RAF. Um, I think something to do with something technical like radio technicians or something like that. And my mum, as a teacher, took a bunch of students to the island for a school excursion and they all met from there. It's got, it's got a feeling of good morning Vietnam to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, they, so, yes, my parents got married in Malaysia and um, and then not long after my father got posted back to Wagga Wagga and I was born in Wagga. Wow. Christ, it would have been a bloody uh, huge uh, cultural uh, shift for your mother. I believe so. She doesn't talk about it much, although I did hear her telling someone many years ago about when she first landed in Wagga and I think she was pretty much the only dark-skinned person <laughs> in Wagga and from what I understand, she was very beautiful, you know, like really stunning and, um, you know, the, the, the beehive and long luscious black hair and really thin and beautiful and, and um, you know, probably quite exotic to people in Wagga so I think she was yeah. a little bit of a interest you know people were interested in who this person was and where she came from but i do understand from what from her that it wasn't easy transitioning so that was in Mm. um, 1968 69 so it wasn't easy coming to australia i think the white australia policy it just finished Mm. or was starting you know to come to an end so it was a very um unusual environment but, you know, she's a pretty, um, I, th- I would like to think she's a proud Australian now. She's an Australian citizen. Um, she had to become an Australian citizen with, with Dad and the RAF. And um, she's very, very strong and opinionated about being, you know, embracing the country you migrate to, embracing their their language, their culture. You don't forget where you come from, but you also you move here for something that's different. Um, so, you know, she very much advocates for that. She does a lot of volunteer work with migrants. She has, in all her time in Darwin, she has worked with migrant women to help them have jobs. Uh, she, ha- she does now and has done for many years lectured new migrants, um, not lectured, sorry, taught English to new migrants. And she does a lot of tutoring of migrants' children um, to help them get through, you know, through school and um, handle English and social sciences and all that. So, you know, yeah, I reckon it was probably pretty hard, but, you know, she's adapted and she's done very well and she loves being in Darwin and she loves all the different nationalities and cultures here and I think it feels like she might be home to a certain degree. So just in relation to your you growing up in the 80s, um, mm. I know, Andrew, you're a prolific uh, poster on social media. 
And I, I really enjoy the posts that you put up of the late 80s with your hairstyle and with uh, <laughs> the clothes and, and with the music. So you, you were quite a, a music fan back then? I love music, yes. Um, and I particularly love Australian music from the 80s. I think it was probably the most creative time for Australian music but people may disagree with me. But I think, you know, if you look at how they've stood time, uh, music from the 80s, whether it's Australian or British, and I prefer those two as to American music in that period, um, you know, we're still listening to it. People are still listening to it. People are still dancing to it. Um, it has such a longevity. I don't think in 30 years anyone will be dancing to what Beyonce's hit is now. <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone maybe will know who Beyonce is in 30 years, but people will still know who David Bowie is and In Excess and all that because their music lives on. So, yeah, it's a big part. And I think, you know, when, when I ca in, P in PNG, we grew up without television. So there was no television in PNG. So we listened to the radio a lot. So at the moment, I'm not sure if you're aware, but Territory FM plays on Saturdays America's Top 40, their retro editions of America's Top 40. And, with with um, Casey Kasem? Yes. And <laughs> it is brilliant listening to it because that's what we grew up on in PNG. Yeah. We listened to that every week religiously. Um, I was only saying to Colin the other day, my only regret is that I probably didn't take in all the music trivia back then, but I do now when I'm listening to it and it's absolutely fascinating. That man knows everything about music across, you know, all the continents. And... Um, so music played a really big part in our lives, I guess, because we listened to radio so much. And then, you know, going to boarding school, there was only one show they allowed us to watch on TV, which was a country practice. I hated that. <laughs> you know, we had to fight, not fight, but I guess um, uh, lobby to a certain degree to be able to watch Countdown on Sunday nights. And mm. so that became, you know, quite a religious thing for all us boarders to do. We watched Countdown. And... Um, and, and so music, I guess, becomes very much a part of your life and a lot of your memories are in it and good memories. And and then coming to Darwin, television finished, I think, like at 10 o'clock at night, didn't it, <laughs> back in the 80s? Mm. There was just, you know, the, the, they played this channel, Channel 8 used to play this weird, um, I don't know, skippy sort of video or something and that was the end of the night's for me. <laughs> so, you know, again... <laughs> 8DN, we used to listen to that. You know, Saturday nights was request night, so we all used to put in requests from school and they were in code and all sorts of things. And so music played a really big part of who we were, you know, and, and I think, you know, for me there's a lot of memories and a lot of emotions attached to that era and, and the music that was played at that time. Um, I remember at St John's when I came, they... Um, <laughs> a lot of the, the girls, they just were in love with Duran Duran, you know. I couldn't stand them. I love them now as an adult, but I couldn't stand them back then. And I, I think in a way I was deliberately a bit like trying to be avant-garde and liking all these weirdo bands just so that they would expand their listening <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I like the 80s and um, a bit of an 80s tragic, but, you know, they were really good years. They were very good years to grow up in. Um, uh, Pete's, a, Pete's a DJ, so I'm waiting for him to actually step in with his uh, synopsis of all of this. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. <laughs> well, I think 
I think music is universal and um, my kids ask me all the time, what's your favourite song? And uh, I suppose when you're eight and nine years old, it seems like an obvious question, but my answer is always the same. I, I can't answer it. I just have so many favourite songs from different times and different eras that uh, I, I can't categorically pick out a single song. It depends, you know, the purpose, it depends where I am, what I'm doing. Um, but, yeah, music of the 80s, uh, well, I've been playing it for 30 years and I'm sure, you know, if I was going to be DJing in 30 years from now, which I hope to hell I won't be, uh, I'm sure they'll, some of those songs will, will still um, continue to get played at, you know, different types of events, weddings and, mm. um, yeah, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. And speaking about the mods, um, I grew up in Melbourne, so we had the, uh, we had the, mon, the mods, we had the skins and we had the trendies and um, everyone sort of had their own different groups. But the, the mods stood out to me because I always liked their clothes. They had amazing footwear. Their Pointy hair shoes, yeah. great hair. Yeah. Yep, yep. Apparently, I'm responsible for the ozone layer over Moyle, where I grew <laughs> up, where I used a copious amount of hairspray yes. and ice mist, and and my mother used to be screaming at me that the world was going to come to an end because of all the hairspray I used. But you know, that yeah. hair never moved once it was set. <laughs> no, it did its job. Yep, absolutely. You're right. I'm trying to remember about the mods. It's sort of ringing a faint, faint bell. But uh, I completely agree with you, by the way, Andrea. I think 80s music, uh, Australian 80s music especially, just amazing, timeless. Um, and although I, I can't say I really got into In Excess until probably, I don't know, maybe my adulthood really, but... Um, some of the other bands like uh, Mondo Rock and um, 1927 and, uh, you know, all those sort of uh, Aussie bands definitely. Uh, Men at Work, I remember. Yeah, very, <laughs> very good music. Well, I was quite lucky when I was at CDU because we had a newspaper back then in the journalism section called Springboard. So I was on the arts round. So... I liked that because I get to get meet all the musicians and I don't know if you remember, but we used to have a lot, a lot of bands come to the Territory back in the late 80s and in the 90s. And um, so whilst I was at uni, I often used to, I don't know how I did it, but somehow scammed to interview most of them and when they came and meet them and, you know, really, truly, it was pretty, you know, they were pretty average I think you know they're all at the height of their careers I quite enjoy seeing them perform now and I think it's great that we can see so many 80 musicians perform now they're enjoying it more now I think because they're mm. not doing it because of the I, I there's an element they'd be doing it because of money but the pressures aren't the same now and you know I remember a couple of years ago I was in Sydney and Culture Club was playing and I was very fortunate to go as a guest of the ICC and I mean they were just amazing and I think they were better I've never seen them perform before in fact I never thought I'd ever see Culture Club live you know a kid in the territory in the 80s <laughs> to think that you would get to get to see any of those bands live I, I Culture Club came to Darwin 
imagine. No, no, they huh. were in Sydney a right, couple right. of years ago right, when I was right. there. But as a kid in the 80s in the mm. Territory, yeah. I don't think any of us thought we'd ever see any mm. of those bands live. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the in the last, you know, five, ten years, air travel's cheaper. It's easier to fly to Sydney for a concert now. And to go see Culture Club perform... They were enjoying it. There was a great synergy on stage and they were enjoying the music. They were enjoying performing. They didn't, you know, you certainly never got a feeling any time during the performance that, oh, my God, let's just get this gig done because, you know, mm. we're going to pocket 60 grand or whatever. You know, there was no feeling like that at all. They got up there. They had a great synergy. They performed. They gave the audience what they wanted and it was an just an amazing feel-good night, you know. It was the same. I, I, I saw Duran Duran. Now, I did not like them at all growing up, but seeing them live in um, in Brisbane in 2012, it was an amazing concert. Like, they weren't even mm. up themselves like they were back in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. They were just ordinary fellows out there on stage. They played great music. They had a great time. And, you know, I remember turning around to my friend Theo, who was there with me, um, and we were at the Brisbane Entertainment Centre in the house seats and we were sitting there and I said to her, doesn't this just feel amazing? We're in a room full of people that are just so happy and it's full of happy memories of a time that we all grew up, that we enjoyed this music and everyone was just in a really happy place but so were the guys on stage performing. It was just amazing. So, you know... I, I think, you know, the music from the 80s does represent a time that I think everyone was in a really good place. I know the 80s represent excesses, but I guess we weren't really exposed to that here so much, you know. We just we were just kids growing up in Darwin. Life was pretty good. It was pretty simple. And, and you know, the music represents really good memories, and I think it does for lots of people. Mm. I think... Um you know, something you touched on there that, that sort of comes immediately to mind for me is that I've seen a lot of bands come and go over the years and, and the ones that stand the test of time. There's, there's that initial flurry, um, you know, when, when they release their music and, and they get to a certain height. Um, and, you know, with that comes money, it comes temptation, it comes drugs, but also what comes with that is a lot of pressure. So, you know, I, I saw Guns N' Roses play for the first time in 1986 in Melbourne and I'd never seen anything so wild in all my life. And then I saw them some years later when they did their follow-up tour. Um, so the, the concert in Melbourne would have had maybe, I don't know, 10,000 people. It was in the Melbourne Entertainment Centre. The next concert was at Calder Park where I think there was 60,000 mm-hmm. people or something and it was out of control. Um um, Rose Tattoo reformed four Guns N' Roses for mm. that tour in Australia. Um, Skid Row played, who I also really liked. And they fell apart after that because the, the excesses just got too mm. crazy. When you look at bands like um, the Rolling Stones, um, I mean, they've been through everything, but to be able to still produce hits and enjoy what you do, Mm. Uh, I saw the Stones come to Melbourne when I was probably tw- uh, 20 years ago now, but they were still pretty old then. <laughs> and 
Mick was, you know, I'd never seen a performer quite like him. He just did not stop from beat number one to the last beat of the night. And I thought, you know, I, I would have been at least half his age and, and I couldn't have done that, you know. Um, when they get back on stage after all of that and when they do these follow-up tours decades later, they're in it for the music because mm. all the rest of it's gone. No one's, you know, you talk about Duran Duran. Well, they might have been the pretty boys in the 80s, but they sure as hell ain't now. Mm. And it's just about the music and, and that mm. does stand the test of time. Mm. It's how I feel about cricket. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, Andrea? <laughs> oh, well, I was such a massive cricket tragic. My mm. my pop introduced me to it when I came to Australia in um 1983 to go to boarding school yeah 83 I think it was and um and we went and saw my pop him he wasn't my real pop his adopted pop in Wagga and um he got me to watch a game of cricket with him and it was West Indies Viv Richards my mm-hmm. god yeah, yeah. and he won the red car whatever it was there, oh, the minister yes. or whatever <laughs> And, um, yeah, I watched my first cricket game with him and fell in love with the game cricket and um, was a massive cricket tragic for years and years and years. I loved it because everybody who played cricket back then when Kerry Packer started it, they played, they didn't get paid. They played because they loved cricket. They loved the game. You know, they, they went out and there was this wonderful camaraderie between not only within the teams but also between the teams you know it was really good fun and um, I I haven't watched cricket probably in I'd say maybe close to 20 years now because the game's changed so much and there's all this you know it's about the money it's about the win it's about the sponsorship it's all this technical crap on the tv (laughs) and and you know it doesn't feel like they love it anymore it's a job whereas you think about jeff lawson he was an optometrist in the day and then he turned up at the mcg on a friday night and played a game of cricket you know um and alan border and you know just all of these guys you know they were just amazing cricketers they were very skilled at what they did at their sport but they were even better at it because they loved it. They went there and played this amazing game and played with all their might. And now cricket's not even an even scale. You know, the third world countries that are part of the the competition, you know, some of those guys still work. They don't have sponsorship deals. They don't get paid. The dollars Australian cricketers get paid. They don't get, you know, the same level of training or the institute and all this sort of stuff. So it's not even even Stevens anymore. Back then it was, you know, everyone was, you know, the same. Um, And then, you know, you had the beauty of the West Indians. I mean, they were just amazing out there. And I was really fortunate. Dad took me to some cricket games when I was younger and I got to meet the West Indian team. And, you know, they, they were just so cool. Um, <laughs> they were just so cool and they weren't up themselves they were just really nice genuine people and and really truly you know when I was um again at uni I had the opportunity to interview um Steve Waugh and Mark Taylor when they were long before they were both um uh head you know the captains of the respective teams and you know <laughs> I um I knew a lot about cricket, but I probably wasn't confident enough to speak about it with them because they probably could have, you know, pulled all my arguments apart or whatever. Hmm. But, you know, they they too back then were pretty genuine, nice 
blokes authentic um i would imagine as time went on some of that may have changed again pressures money sponsorships you know they all have different impacts on them the media um but you know i think cricket's gone the same way it's just not the same anymore so um, tell us some of the interesting people that you've interviewed over the years andrea in darwin oh god i can't even remember (laughs) (laughs) Um, you mentioned 1927 i interviewed them um they were quite nice my favorites were the hoodoo gurus i mean i loved Mm. them and I got to interview them and, <laughs> you know, they were just they were just so deadly and they were so cool. And um, I did an interview with um, Boom Crash Opera with my colleague Stacey and they ended up being stranded in Darwin for a week. It was the plane, the <laughs> pilot strike. So, you know, we hung out with them and, you know, went on tour with them down the track and did all sorts of things. It was good fun, you know. It was just, it was different and... I don't think you could do that sort of stuff so much now. Um, I worked at the entertainment centre for about five years um, in the 90s and, you know, when you work at places like that, you never assume you get to meet anybody famous. You know, you're usually back of house. It's Mm. not – you're never in a role that you get to often meet people. But I think Darwin being a small community and, you know, people come here and they relax, you know, our people culture, we're so friendly and inviting that when artists come to the territory, um, whether they're musicians, comedians, dancers, you know, and I had all of them at the entertainment centre. I even got to meet Viv Richards and Ian Botham at the entertainment (laughs) centre. If Richards is really, really nice for the record, Ian Botham, not so well. Just saying. Um, um, But, you know, I got to meet a lot of the artists or a lot of the performers or um, uh, come through. And I think because of Darwin's, I think the heat, Hmm. the warm friendliness of people, they tend to relax here. So you get to have an opportunity to speak to them a bit more on a real, you know, real, uh, there's some realness, some authenticity. You see who they are a little bit, you know, rather than them just being the big super mega star sort of people. Um, Yeah, I I should probably sit down one day and write down all the people, you know, I sort of have met over time because I I do feel very blessed that I've had the chance to do that because it just doesn't happen very often, you know. Um, yeah, Darwin does give you that opportunity to do things that I think you would never be able to do in other cities. Yeah. You know, I never had the courage to leave Darwin. I always wanted to leave. I always thought I could do it, but I never had the courage to. I, was, I really was terrified I couldn't cut it anywhere else. <laughs> you know, it, it's probably a really bizarre thing, but I, I just didn't think I'd have what you needed, the nows or whatever, to make it in a big city. And my sister was much braver than me. She went on all sorts of adventures, but I could never leave the territory because I was too terrified to. But And I remember on the eve of my 30th birthday and I was with Colin, I think I had a big meltdown, a really big cry saying, you know, I haven't done anything, you know. I've got a friend who's working in the States right now on Hillary Clinton's campaign and what have I done, sat in Darwin. And Colin's, Colin very rightly reminded me that I had done a lot of things 
a lot of opportunities, a lot of opportunities with work um, that I may not have received anywhere else in the country. But it happened here because of the uniqueness that is Darwin mm. and probably being in the right place at the right time or maybe not being in the right place at the right time. So, you know, after he sort of reminded me of that, I sort of had a bit of a reality and check and thought, you know what, he's absolutely right. I've, I've had a lot of amazing experiences and opportunities and, you know, probably people elsewhere have never had the chance to do any of that stuff. Mm. So where did you meet Colin, Andrea? <laughs> <laughs> so my girlfriend that I went through uni with, also known as Andrea, um, she worked at the NT News and her desk was next to Colin. And in those days, we did, email was just starting, but we didn't really communicate with email at all. We were still ring each other and I don't know like how you guys were, but uh, Andrew and I used to speak numerous times during the day. You know, we knew everyone's phone numbers off by heart. And, um, of course, in those days, uh, we used to do all our own um, ads for the newspaper on Corel Draw, would you believe? <laughs> and so I'd put together the ads for wherever I was, whether it was at the entertainment centre or it's actually the Crafts Council then when I met Colin. But yeah, I put the ads together and then I would go down to the NT News and drop it off and then I'd see Andrea and catch up with all the other people I knew there and it was very social. And um, anyway, whenever I'd ring for Andrea, um, Colin often took the call. She wasn't there at her desk. I didn't know who he was, but I actually thought he was pretty rude <laughs> um, and very, you know, abrupt. Um, and then it turned out one day I went into the paper. Andrea was there. He happened to be there. She introduced us. And um, I, I didn't think very much of him at all. And um, anyway, much later on, uh, Andrew and I and another two women, uh, both, would you believe, Marnies, so there was Marnie, Marnie, Andrew and Andrea, <laughs> we used to go out every Thursday night and we had this thing, we'd go out on Thursday nights for dinner and you had to bring somebody the others didn't know to the table for dinner so that we get to meet people. And, and I guess, you know, we were always on the hunt for a story, you know, um, even though I wasn't working in journalism, you're on the hunt for a story and I'd give the story to Andrea or whoever at the paper, you know, sort of thing. So um, we, we got to meet loads and loads of people around Darwin by inviting them out to dinner on a Thursday night. And one Thursday night, Andrea brought Colin and... I bought an ABC journalist <laughs> and, and, um, and I, I was quite interested in this ABC journalist outside of journalism. I thought he was a bit interested <laughs> in me. And um, anyway, him and Colin ended up seated next to each other at dinner and they entertained each other and the rest of them were And um, And... I don't think we invited Colin out again after that for a while. And then he asked um, Andrea if there was going to be another opportunity for him to come out. And in those days, we used to go out on every Friday night uh, to the bar that was in the, the now Hilton. So there used to be a bar underneath. I don't remember what it was called. So we used to go there on Friday after work for drinks. Most of the journos, I was one of the few non-journos with the other Marnie. And, um, and Colin joined us 
and became part of the group that came out with us. So I got to meet, you know, know him there. And I don't know when the turning point was, but at some point we realised that we liked each other. But I think it was a good six months or so down the track of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> going out as a group and, and doing things and stuff like that. So, yeah, so we met there. So Andrea's really responsible for introducing us and, um, and yeah, and the story goes from there. And, and, but he's, he wasn't born in Darwin though, was he? No, he was born in Sydney and he grew up in Sydney and then later on in the Atherton Tablelands. So what brought him to Darwin? The job? Work, yeah. Right. Did he always know he was going to be a cartoonist? Uh, He left school for a cartooning job, yes. So I guess so. I don't know. You might have to interview him separately on that, Leo. <laughs> well, uh, you told me he doesn't want to come on the podcast. <laughs> uh, maybe he'll see how this one goes first before he commits to him. So, so then you, you, you got married um, and then you had yes. William. Did William come along yes, straight away? We had No, no. So we were together five years, then we got married and then William came a couple of years after that. And, yes, we only had one child. One was enough. That I wasn't really interested in having children. It wasn't part of the package. But Colin convinced me. And to his credit, um, he was amazing. Like, I went back to work when William was three months old and, and Colin took on, uh, I would say, 90% of the parenting responsibilities um, and and did such an amazing job. Like William is a credit to Colin, and I think you know I was always so impressed because Colin's probably Colin's quite a, he's ten years older than me, so he's of a generation that probably wouldn't necessarily be the stay-at-home dad. Um, but he was just amazing with William's upbringing, and of course um, William was only six when I landed the role at the convention centre, which was my dream job uh, as the event manager there. What year was it? 2008. Oh, okay, yeah. So I I joined them just probably, they opened in June and I joined them in September. Mm. And, um, you know, at the time we were given the opportunity, I was about to take my long service leave from the government and take it, you know, as a part-time thing so we were away for six months we had actually put in place to go live in Malaysia for six months so William I suppose had the same opportunity I had when growing up when my dad always took us back to Malaysia every second year to spend time with my mum's family and I wanted him to enjoy some of that as well so we'd made the decision we'd already looked into schooling and everything and um, the job from the convention centre was offered and, you know, to Colin's credit, you know, he said, you've been waiting for this, you know, take it, do it. And I said, you know, this is this is going to be hard work. The first two years, I probably won't be home very much. It's going to be hard, hard work. And it was. It was massive days and it was seven days a week for a very long time. But, you know, he looked after everything with William and um, I didn't really have to worry about a thing. And, you know, and William was very mature as a child in the sense that, you know, He ended up saying to me one day, you know, you don't need to worry, Mum, about coming to things. I'll let you know when I need you there. And so that's how we worked things. He would tell me if, you know, I had to be at an assembly and then I made sure my schedule worked around that. But other than that, Colin, you know, really takes the full parenting 
credit for William and the person he is. It's I, I had very little to do with that. <laughs> so probably a real role reversal to what most people are, are used to and and it was confronting, you know, I went back, I was working at Power and Water at the time when I uh, went back from maternity leave and I remember one of the female staff bailing me up in the staff room and saying, you know, how can you leave your baby at home, you know, leave your baby and come back to work, it's th he's three months old. And I'm like, I didn't leave him, he's with his father, you know. Um, how many boys have the luxury of growing up with their dad rather than their mum as their role model like their dad's there for them every step of the way there's not many boys who get to do that because most dads are busy working you know they're and and they're the main breadwinner for the family and I know I might have really old-fashioned views but that still is the way things are you know so um, I, I just said to her, I thought she was looking at it really from the wrong perspective. The child wasn't abandoned at all. He was being looked after by one parent at home. And, you know, when you have a dad looking after a boy, you know, toilet training and all that stuff is really, really simple because they just want to copy dad. 24-7. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's easy. You know, mum trying to show a boy how to do stuff, it's much easier when dad's doing all that stuff 24-7. So it's quicker. <laughs> I, was just, I was actually just thinking that um, young Lucy, who's about 18 months now and, and trotting around the place, has uh, – joined me in the toilet a couple of times in the last few days <laughs> and just watching her little face trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing <laughs> entertainment on its own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on the subject of William, I know you've, you've posted stuff on Facebook mm. and, and things like that. You've, you've very, you look like you're very supportive parents in terms of, you know, taking him down to Sydney for the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras mm. and, and all that. Yeah. Like when did William come out uh, and, and how did you guys deal with that? Oh, um, William came out in, mm, would have been 2000 and he was in middle school. He was in year seven, I think it was. Um, it's quite a while ago and... Um, it was it was interesting because we'd been away in in Malaysia and um, and um, to Chiang Mai and that we'd come back and um, I was out and about one day and William had come home from school and was quite distressed and you know Colin called me and said you have to come home he needs to talk to you and we're sitting on the lounge and it was it was it's quite funny now in hindsight but you know he's sitting there and he's really really upset and we're trying to work out and I'm trying to work out what's got him so upset and then after going through all these different scenarios like did grandma catch you at casuarina wagging and you know all these different things did you steal something from a shop or you know all the things you think kids go through and he um he was crying and really upset and I said are you trying to tell me you're gay and he said yes and I said okay well that that's fine you know I kind of suspected it anyway, you know, and, you know, he looked at me and he goes, are you disappointed? And I said, no, no, it's just 
it is what it is. Um, and he asked me to go down and, and tell his dad because Colin was in the garden leaving us to talk and I said, you know, go have a shower, wash yourself up and I'll go tell dad and then you and dad can have a conversation. You know, we can all have a chat together. And um, so, yeah, so he went and did that. I went downstairs. I did the I told you so dance because I'm mean, going <laughs> 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 <And, and>, um, <laughs> Mothers know, right? Yeah. And um, and so, you know, Colin, William and I sat down and, and Colin, you know, to his credit, you know, said to William, you know, it's no big deal. This is who you are. And, um, you know, you're going to go through lots of changes, maturing now over the next few years. And, you know, if it turns out that, you know, if you are gay, you're gay. If it turns out that later on you decide you like women and you're not gay, that's okay. This is part of the story. It's part of the journey. And let's just, you know, just be yourself, be true to yourself and, and um, just this is life. And um, I think it really did make a difference to William. He seemed to be less he was quite a when I say aggressive, his manner was very aggressive. He wasn't aggressive as in hitting anyone or hurting anyone or hurting us, but his manner was aggressive, and I think it was because he knew this was going on, this internal struggle of some sort was going on and and you know i I remember asking him when when did you think you knew and he says i've known for ages I always knew I was a bit different." And I said, oh, okay. And, and you know, we have some very, very dear friends who are gay, who, have, who are very active in the community. Um, we also have some very close friends, male, male gay friends who William is extremely close to. So they were all very supportive and helped us. We didn't really know what to do, how to do. I was more worried about him getting bullied at school. Mm. But he'd come out at school long before he told us. Wow. So, uh, yeah. Um, so I don't know if it was the fear that maybe, because I did go to one parent-teacher night and I think he was a bit shocked that I knew lots of the parents, but I had no idea these people had kids, let alone mm. at the same school as William because that just wasn't the world I, mm. I was in. And so I don't know if William sort of had a bit of a reality check like, oh, mum knows all these people and their kids know I'm gay. Maybe she'll find out. I don't know if that was the epiphany or or what but you know we we had amazing support from the lgbti community in darwin and from our lgbti friends that you know don't live here and that are close to william and um and it it really was it's just normal we're just a normal family um i when i went and got some help in the some of the people at NTARC were like, well, wait, you should come on the Darwin Pride Committee. And I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm a straight person. And they go, well, we need mums, you know, we need mums of people. We need straight people too who are allies. And so I joined the Darwin Pride Committee and worked with them and, and a whole range of people from the community, from all sectors of the LGBTIQA community. And, you know, I did that for four years and, and really my agenda and I made it really clear all along was to make sure there was something for young people because they often get left off, particularly in Darwin, because, you know, no one really knows where they are, who they are or anything. So it was good. You know, we were able to create a festival that was inclusive for them as well, not just for the adults. Um, and we were able to have fun days and, and activities that included them so that 
these kids, including William, could be in a safe environment and know that they're they're safe and they're amongst their peers and and it was very satisfying to be able to achieve that and that and you know pride still continues to do that to this day William now doesn't feel um, that I need to be or well, he said this quite a while ago there's no need for me to be in that space anymore because he's very comfortable with who he is and what he is and what he stands for and he you know he says I don't need to go out there and say to everybody I'm gay and this is who I am you know he's mm. William that's mm. who he is so mm. so I don't you know I don't feel I need to advocate in that space anymore but you know we always do support you know, we have a lot of friends there and our sons in that community and it's important that they feel the love and support from everybody and, you know, we just do our best in that space. I don't always get it right, though. I do use the wrong terms and I don't know what things mean. <laughs> and I Google, much to people's horror, I Google things, you know, to like see what, what we are. Oh, no, I'm not going to go. People who know, know, but, you know, it, it, you know, I've learned a lot too about that part of the community and who they are. And, I mean, they're amazing people. You know, they're just like us. Mm. There's, there's no, you know, it was so, and it was so good, you know, to be part of, you know, I guess, you know, part of history with the yes vote and knowing that's going to make an impact for my family and you know and even though I have quite conservative parents you know they're so supportive of William and taking him to Mardi Gras oh my lord I have some <laughs> things I will never understand in my life but it was the most amazing experience the chair of Darwin Pride Jenny Smith was also in Sydney with us she was an amazing support to William the team from from um, Party Passport, Ben Gratz and Daniel Cunningham. Ben, you know, he's an amazing um, community leader in that regard. And you know, they they William was the youngest person to march for Dar you know for the territory that year. He went out there, he had so much fun, and um, he was so skinny and so white. We have to get him a tan next time. <laughs> um, <laughs> my my dad, you know, I told Dad not to watch the Mardi Gras because I think he would find that a bit confronting he's not anti it but I think it would be confronting for him and um, and when we got back to Darwin we were sitting at the airport waiting for our luggage he's going show me the photos show me the photos and and he goes oh William's a bit glow in the dark isn't he you do need to give him a <laughs> so how about you how about your mother I mean she's you know yeah. obviously from a conservative Indian background yeah. how did that go yeah. down Oh, look, they were amazing. We got them around. You know, William asked me if I would tell them because he, he would be there, but he was too scared to tell them. So I rang them and said that they needed to come over. And my poor parents, my dad thought something really bad had happened, like shoplifting or something. <laughs> and um, we sat them down and, um, and you know, we explained William was gay and he wanted them to know and my parents were just amazing. I mean, they have a lot of gay friends in their circle as well. So, you know, my parents said it doesn't make any difference to them. You know, they love him for who he is and they support him. He has a very strong relationship with both of them. You might not know, but my uncle is a cardinal in Rome. Oh, well, in Malaysia. He's Malaysia's first cardinal. And... Um, my uncle Soda, he he is one of the most um, accepting 
kind, generous Catholic people I know. And whilst I'm a Catholic, I'm not a practicing Catholic. I'm a bit uh, removed from the church. I still have my faith, but there's a lot of things I don't agree with with the church and, and what they do. But um, my uncle really respects my space with that and um, and he is amazing with William. In fact, our whole family's funny little mashup of stuff and we've all got funny little things that go on. But Uncle Soda doesn't see any of that. He's We're just his family and it doesn't matter. Mm. So, you know, he and, and you know, mum's from that conservative side, but, you know, um, you know, some of her close friends are from the LGBTI community and they, they are who they are. So, you know. So that's a, a lovely story and I'm, I'm so glad that you were willing to share that with us, Andrea. I want to, um, I want to change tact a little bit and I want to talk about another um, area of advocacy that you um, have been involved in. Mm. Um, and I want to do that because I know that it's one of these areas that, Peter has got um, some interest in as well, uh, perhaps from a different angle, and that is your your uh, involvement with BPW. Oh, I'm not on their committee anymore. Right, but you, you have been, though, quite heavily involved, yeah. haven't you? Uh, yes, I was on the committee for an 18-month period. Um, yes. What were you going to ask me? Because for, for Pete's sake, I'll, t- I'll tell you what BPW stands for. It's oh. a bus- business professional women's network, Pete. So um, Peter and I have had discussions from time to time about, um, about um, I'm just trying to think uh, how I phrase this, you know, um, Say it as it is, Leon. Uh, I'm actually, I'm trying to think of the words. I, I, I've actually completely lost even the words. Uh, but it's, you know, promoting women uh, in business and mm. and just the whole um, women's movement, if, if you like. And Pete um, and I have had these discussions from time to time where um, I guess, I don't know, Pete, you can, you can speak for yourself, but he sort of thinks, well, you know, it sometimes feels a little bit overdone. And I know that mm. in my discussions mm. with you, you've definitely shared those sentiments mm. with me. Mm. So I just want to sort of drill down a little bit into that and mm. possibly see if there is some, um, some things we can learn from it. Well, I don't really like to play the gender card stuff. Um, I think if you're good at what you do, you're good at what you do, male or female, irrespective. Um, BPW does um, advocate for women. It advocates for um, equal pay. Um, it advocates, you know, for equal rights, etc. None of that I dispute, but I suppose I look at it from a very different perspective and maybe it's because I haven't been affected in any of those areas ever in my working life or personally. So for me, um, joining BPW was about, in a way, I guess, being able to mentor, and I'm not saying I'm a mentor, but maybe passing on skills, passing on knowledge, passing on the ability for women just to be able to develop or do new things. Um, I'm not a staunch feminist by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't like women. Mm, 
I don't want to use the word abuse because it's in the wrong context, but I don't like seeing women taken advantage of, whether it's professionally or personally. I felt that joining BPW was going to give me an opportunity to help um, women, particularly in Darwin, because I've always advocated that we should nurture our own in the territory and I'm very I suppose I'm very Darwin centric because I haven't lived anywhere else in the territory I may have visited but I'm not familiar with other communities in the territory so I always think it's really important that we nurture our own in our community and and that they have the opportunities whether it's work or professional or personal development and stuff like that. So that was my driver with BPW. Um, I had um, been involved with them when I was at the convention centre. I was a member, then I sort of went away from it. I didn't agree with the path they were taking. That's me personally. I don't think there was anything wrong with what they the they were doing as an organization and then um, got reintroduced to it I suppose by Angela Tomazos who was uh, chair or president at the time when they were having a bit of a um, lull in the organization and probably needing to focus on what they wanted to do and Angela came to me to see if I could help them sort of re-energize a bit so it was more a job and and looking at how we could re-energize the club and and ensure it was relevant and meeting its objectives. So I worked with Angela and another lady, Frida Evans, on that and building the club up again, the BPW Club for Darwin. And, you know, I didn't even become a member then, you know, after doing that work with them. And I'm usually very loyal with things like that. But I suppose I wanted them to tell me why I should become a member. Mm. and what they were going to do, what was going to be attractive for me to be a member. And then for some unknown reason, I don't know, I became a member and then they were looking for a secretary and I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to start doing some stuff. (laughs) And I suppose I was looking to getting back into some volunteer work and some, you know, working on some committees again. And so I went back to BPW there and, um, Look, I've met some very amazing women through that network, Um, women I probably wouldn't be exposed to normally, women in aviation, women in the public sector that I didn't, weren't aware of, women in private business. Um, You know, I find, oh, this is going to be a little bit weird to say, I probably prefer working with men than I do with women. Mm. I... (laughs) There's no emotion involved with men. It's black and white. I love that because I tend to be like that sometimes. Sometimes I think I should have been born a boy. Um, uh, I, I, I struggle with the emotive side of women when it comes to committees and stuff like that. That's my struggle. Um, and I, I, whilst I see a bit more grey these days, I can still be very black and white about some things. And I think BPW, I gave it a shot for 18 months, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. It wasn't a good fit for me. Um, and I'm okay with that because maybe it's not where I need to be right now in my journey. Well, I want I wanted to introduce Pete into this conversation because Pete and I have been trying to have, or well, Pete at least has been trying to have a conversation with uh, one of our previous guests on the podcast, Debbie Foster, which I think we've been trying to line up now for the best part of a year and a and a bit. Mm. But um, Pete, what what exactly with Debbie did you want to discuss? Well, 
I feel like you're dumping me in something here, Leon. I am. I'm throwing you under the bus right now, mate. Well, I, <laughs> I guess the conversation was around the fact that um, we, we, we attended a conference in Singapore in 2019, as you well know, and there was a great conversation uh, topic at, at one of the sessions there, which was talking about unconscious bias. Mm. And... I've become more and more aware of it and more and more zeroed in on it since that point in time. Mm. And um, look, you know, everyone's got their path in life and everyone's got their, their bits and bobs. So I, I, I have found it interesting. I've been in business for 30 years and I've seen, you know, the, the ups and the downs and various groups and various communities. And we've seen the evolution in, in, um, you know, recent years, as you described, of of different women's groups and and um, collectives, which I, I think is great. I I I sit here as a as a white male, under fifty years of age, who is in in a certain demographic who is almost actively picked on now because of simply that alone. Um, and you know, sure as hell. There's been plenty of people in, in my category who have created this situation that we're now in. Um, but I just I find the whole unconscious bias a really, really fascinating uh, conversation and it's, it's only just evolving. <laughs> but, but do you agree with it or not, Pete? I mean, I got the feeling in conversations that we've had that you were sort of didn't really think it was, uh, you know, you thought it was perhaps a bit overblown. No, I, I, I absolutely believe that people um, behave because of bias, both conscious and unconscious. It, it, it's a fact of life. Um, but, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff in, in the digital marketing space, as you well know, and, and on the social media side of things, um, being a female is an absolute advantage. So they've, they've automatically got the, the, they're way out ahead of all of us blokes for a whole variety of reasons. No, I, I'm, I'm more than, um, you know, of the belief that there is unconscious bias, but um, it's just, yeah, as, as Andrea said, I, I think that people become very militant about it. And it, it, it becomes almost like a badge of honour to jump on the bandwagon of, of any minority group if that's in fact what they are. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 know, I think I know where you're going with this, but I, I'm not sure that... Well, um, I, guess, I guess what I'm really trying to do is I know both of you, so I have the advantage, oh. right? I know both oh. of you. And I know that you both actually have very similar views about this, <laughs> right. right? Which is why I wanted to sort of try and introduce that conversation into the mix because, because I mean, you, you both have individually told me from time to time, what on earth is all this about? This whole, this, mm. this, this reverse discrimination, this mm. whole, you know, this is just wrong. You know, mm. you, you, and you both, to me, you know, individually have, had the same level of um, annoyance is probably one of the words mm. I'd use about all of this. 
And so I just wanted to flesh this out because I think it's a conversation that needs to be had. I think uh, it's one of those ones that tend to get buried because, I mean, I can hear you from your own um, responses, Pete, that you sort of feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about it and exposing what you really think because you, didn't, you don't want people to think badly of you. But I think it's, you know, it's important to have these conversations. Well, can I share a story with you? Many years ago, um, when Colin and I were dating before we were married, um, ABC wanted to do a story for 7.30 Report on Colin. And I think it was because it was his 10th anniversary back then with the newspaper. So it was probably 1998, thereabouts. And they wanted me to be home for the interview. And I think what became very evident was they asked me to do things like make a cup of coffee for Colin and they were filming this all right and the ABC spends a hell of a lot of time filming a lot of stuff that just must end up on the floor. So anyway, they asked me and it was really portraying me very much in a subservient role because I think a lot of people think or did think back then that Colin was quite a chauvinist and hated women and all this sort of stuff and, you know, I... I you know, generalising who he is. And, you know, Peter Collins, you know, in that age group, that middle-aged white male age group, which I get really offended when people talk about it all the time because he's not that person. In fact, my father's not even that person. It's just been generalised and everyone gets lumped in the one basket. And I, I get very frustrated with the conversation because I also know a lot of men in that age group and they're not those people at all all. Um, I'm not saying they don't exist, but what I'm saying is it's a minority, not that it's not everybody lumped in the one thing. But this ABC interviewer, oh, it was Genevieve. Hussey. Was, Genevieve Hussey? No, Hussey. not Genevieve Hussey. I'll think of it. I can, I can actually see what a great it. Name, I just though. need to come <laughs> back and come back to it but you know they said you know Andrew can you make Colin a cup of coffee while he's working I looked at them and I said I've got no idea how to make a cup of coffee and they looked at us and Colin goes I always make her hot drink for her she never does it mm. you know because that's what Colin did you know every day I'd get up and he'd make my Milo and you know off we go um, and then they wanted me to hang washing on the line and I just looked at him and I said that ain't Anyway, in hell, I'm going to do that and you feel me doing it. You know, it was all these, and I don't discredit the traditional roles that women play in society, not at all. You know, my mum mm. is one of those people and, you know, she didn't work but she worked at home, you know, and, and she played a very important role in our upbringing and everything. So, you know, I don't discredit it but that's not who I am. And that's not who Colin and I were. And then, you know, they're wanting me to water the garden. Colin goes, you know, she never goes out in the garden. You know, I don't. I don't like nature. Um, and so I appeased them. I appeased them by watering the garden. And I kid you not, they filmed it. And at, when they said that's enough, I just threw the hose, right? I threw yeah. it. 
they kept all that on the interview. Oh, my God. They still play it on <laughs> some television station that Australian ABC overseas is still going. I don't know. Yeah. But occasionally oh, yeah, yeah, people is, will yeah. contact us and say, oh, we just saw that video of you throwing the horror you know? <laughs> because they were asking me to do things that were totally foreign to me and they were uh. trying to typecast us as this couple that we weren't, you know, mm. and I just said, no, I'm not going to have it. And, you know, and later on I remember us being at a dinner, a fundraising dinner. I was Collins plus one. I was working at the Crafts Council then and um, if you don't, Crafts Council is now tactile arts, so you're working with people who do arts and crafts, you know, at a very high level. Um, and the, the GM of the ABC was there at our table. And, you know, and he turned to me and he said to me, and what little job do you have? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, wow. well, actually, I work at the Crafts Council. And he goes, oh, so you basket weave. You know, there's <laughs> all these, um, there was all these sort of assumptions made and you're just sort of sitting there going, you know, I'm more than this. But, you know, by the same token, very recently I had an incident and this is with a female so a young female influencer in Darwin, quite well known, and I had approached her to help me with one of my clients um, and she hadn't responded. And I happened to be in a retail store in Darwin when she walked in. And so I made the decision. It was very much out of my comfort zone to go and introduce myself. Now, many years ago, one of my older girlfriends said to me, you know, Andrea, when you hit 45, 50, you realise how insignificant you are as a female. And I always thought that was really harsh, right? Really harsh. And she said, you know, you become invisible, right? You become invisible to everybody. You're there, but you're invisible. So I was talking to this young influencer in the shop. And, you know, for the first time ever in my life, I have been, never been made to feel so insignificant. And this is by a female. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know we had influences in Darwin. I was going to say, you're going to have to name names now. <laughs> no, no, no. But, do you know, I, I felt so inadequate. I've never really been someone who feels inadequate. I can be not confident, mm -hmm. but I felt very inadequate. And, you know, I felt like that frumpy 50-year-old woman there, you know, the woman's half my age, towered over me, slim, gorgeous, beautiful, all everything, probably a bit of an airhead when she opened her mouth. But, you know, I just, I, I, I really did feel insignificant and invisible. So was, was it the conversation or the lack of response or what, what made you feel both, like that? Both. And yeah. just how she treated me and how she responded and the conversation. And, you know, it was almost like it was such an inconvenience. And I just thought, you know, there is a better way to handle this. But, you know, we are talking about a generation that's a me generation. There's no real Correct. social conscience. There's no yeah. real sense of giving. I think, you know, um, you guys love your podcast. You, I no doubt follow Simon Sinek and he's done this during COVID, this sense of uh, giving or sense of social responsibility, did a really good interview with um, Maria Shriver about her sense of giving and, and, and how you contribute to your social fabric. 
this young, you know, I'm making some generalizations here, I know, but this woman made me feel if she's representing that demographic, there is no sense of giving, there is no sense of community. It's about a sense of self. Yeah. Can I also give you a response to that on behalf Mm. of um, reality? Mm. Is that because I'm quite entrenched in that world? And, and Leon and I talk about this a lot because, you know, we both know people who are obsessed by this world. Here's, here's the reason for that. And, yeah, we could go on about it for five hours, but let me give you the overarching reason for that. These people haven't had to work for what they've achieved so far because, and let's say it how it is, because if they are young and skinny and good-looking, they can wear whatever it is they want to wear to get themselves noticed. They're, they're not really influencing anything. They're just accumulating numbers by people that want to look at them or listen to what garbage it is they've got to say, but they haven't had proper jobs and had to achieve anything in their lives to achieve this sort of insta-famous uh, persona they now take on. So that's why there's no sense of it's not you that, that she wasn't mm. looking at, mm. it's anyone because they've mm. never had to focus on anything because it's all come so easily for them. Mm. I always say they haven't felt any pain. You know, we grew up with two recessions. You know, I know what it's like for a parent to lose a job in a recession. I know, you know, how hard it was for my parents to buy uniforms at one point. You know, we were a comfortable family, not a rich family. So, you know, there was some hardship over certain periods. But, you know, I and I even see this with my son William. I say to Colin, you know, he hasn't felt pain. He doesn't know what the pain of needing something or I'd say need rather than want, you know, that need mm. to to be able to get something, have something. Um, there's been no pain to get it. There's no, no waiting for it. It's a very now society and it's reflective in everything even in the purchasing power of these generations now you know things like after pay you know like mm. yeah <laughs> they're already poor when they get paid because they're paying yeah. after pay for everything you know yeah. like how can you live like that it's crazy so well, just, just ask the government <laughs> yeah, <well>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Andrea and I were talking about that before you got on, mate. <laughs> They've after, after paid the next 20 years. Yeah, yeah so true, so true. Mm. Andrea, what, uh, what are you doing at the moment? What, what's your business? Well, my business is Salty Plum Events. So mm. I'm a very, I am a small bespoke event company. I'm small deliberately. I, when I left the convention centre, I really had no plan. I just got to the point that I thought, yeah, I'm done here. And I really had no plan of what I was going to do. Um, I, I went from there and I went back to, would you believe, I went back to the Northern Territory government. A, a former colleague of mine rang me when she found out I was leaving and said, hey, do you want to come back and work with me? She's amazing to work with. And um, I said, yeah, all right, but I only want to work part-time. And she goes, we'll do whatever you want. And so I went back to work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays and managed to do other public servants did in a full week and three days. 
which I really, really enjoyed. But I wanted only to do six months because the opportunity to go and live in Malaysia for three months came up again and we took it. And that was probably the best thing because, one, we went for three months. We took William. We had an amazing time living in Penang. And I really did nothing and I needed the disconnect from the world that was the convention centre because it was a massive role. It was very intense. It was pressure all the time in a good way and sometimes a bad way but um, to totally disconnect and so we had the three months over there and then I came back and I really didn't have a plan but before I went I had been approached by a few clients previous clients from the convention center who said you know why don't you do event management and you know we'll work with you and all this and I'm denied and so while I was away I made the decision that yes I would do it, but on my terms. And that was I was going to work with people I liked. I wasn't going to take clients for the sake of taking clients. I was going to work on projects that I had a genuine interest in and projects that I could give something back to, whether I volunteered some of my time or I worked at a lesser rate so they could afford to have me. Um, I wasn't driven by the bottom line. I was driven by what was going to keep me happy. And that has been a massive motivator since 2012. Um, I became very ill in 2012. Yes. I really shouldn't be sitting here. I, I really should have died. And I didn't, probably to the despair of some people. <laughs> and they were also probably a bit shocked that I had a heart because they found out I had one in there. <laughs> but... Um, I when I on, on my road to recovery there was a lot of stuff that all patients who have open heart surgery go through but I, I really had to question why I was given a second chance you know I really literally should not be here I defied all odds so I guess, you know, that started me questioning why I was working at the convention centre and why I was doing the different things and then to leave there and then go to Malaysia, have this amazing experience living there um, and an amazing family time, just Colin, William and I, and, and then to come back. It wasn't just about work anymore. It, was, it had to be much more fulfilling. So I started Salty Plum Events with a former colleague of mine, um, Vicky Spence, and um, unfortunately, Vicky's husband retired and wanted to travel more, so we, we parted ways on good terms, and I took over Salty Plum Events full-time for the past four years, but I literally only take jobs with people I want to work with, and there is a lot of work I turn away. Um, and it's not necessarily because I don't like them. It's sometimes the subject just doesn't interest me. I've recently walked away from a job that I've been doing because I realised it wasn't the best fit for me. Um, I'm not really proud of that. I tried. I tried really hard to deliver what they wanted, but it wasn't a good fit for me. I felt I couldn't resonate with it. I couldn't resonate with the cause. Um, but I'm okay admitting that. Uh, a lot of people don't like it, it. It can be seen as a failing that you admit that you can't do something. But 
I'm one of those people, if I can't do it, I can't do it, you know, and I don't, I don't just persevere with it for the sake of it. You know, I'm lucky that Colin has a good income, so it allows me to pick and choose what I want to do. Um, and, you know, and he's behind me the whole way, you know, encouraging me. So I have some amazing clients that have been with me for many years and I get to do some really amazing gigs and I'm always astounded I'm always told I shouldn't be, but I'm always astounded by the amount of support I get from the local business community, you know, local business leaders who engage with me or ask me to work with them. Um, and really, ultimately, Salty Plum Events is just about delivering, you know, good event experiences. It's not about me. It's about the topic, the cause, um, the event itself, you know, I'm very much behind the scenes. I don't like being up the front at all, and Leon can attest to that. <laughs> I do not like being put on the spot in the room. I'm very much behind the scenes. I like to fly under the radar. Um, I, I, you know, I'm very passionate about doing the best I can, and 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 you know. I don't know what else I can say, but Salty Plum Events is just my little project that I happily, merrily go along and, and have fun with and meet, you know, work with some really amazing people along the way. Well, if it wasn't for that, uh, Andrea, I don't think we would have uh, been working as, as much together as we have right. over the last several years. And I want to thank you for, uh, for always supporting Ward Keller and, um, and our budget breakfast. And, uh, you know, you've, you've done so much. In fact, you are actually the, the person behind those events because there's nobody else. And um, it's been really, really good, Andrea. I really appreciate all the work that you've done for us. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it immensely. So, look, uh, on that note, I want to take uh, the opportunity to thank you for coming on the podcast, Andrea. It's been very interesting speaking with you. It always is for me, I have to say. <laughs> I always learn something new or you always make me laugh. Um, <laughs> and I hope, uh, I hope um, uh, Pete gets to meet you in person when he gets back up here eventually. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. I've probably talked way too much. <laughs> I was one of those kids that always had on the report card that I talked too much, you know. <laughs> you, can't too, you can't talk too much on this podcast, Andrea. That's the uh, beauty of it. This is true. I have listened to a few of them, Leon, believe it or not. So <laughs> I, I did fall asleep on Friday listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what it's designed to do. In fact, Tracy that's Hayes it. tells me that yeah. she listens to it when she can't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not actually for people to listen to, it's to help them sleep. <laughs> I, I was really interested, but then I just fell asleep. I don't know why. Maybe it was just the nice, you know, tones of the voices. I'm not sure, but it was, it was interesting but I must admit I didn't get to the end. I fell asleep. But, yeah, thank you for having me and um, I hope it was interesting, you know. I don't actually think I have a very interesting life. So. <laughs> it was indeed. That was Andrea Wicking on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. 
For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.